This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. I announced that the word redemption was going to be a focus for last week and this week. We just put that word up on the screen real quick, let everybody take a look at it. In my opinion, um, one of the most powerful words in any language ever. What could be better than the opportunity to get back what was lost, what was stolen, what was broken, what was seemingly completely destroyed? That's what redemption's all about. It's about the opportunity to have things restored in our lives, things returned to a state of blessing and perfection. Now, I'm not perfect yet, and I don't think many of you in the room are, maybe some, but we're supposed to be on a pathway. We're supposed to be on a journey. We're supposed to be in the process of being perfected day by day. Um, The word redemption can apply spiritually, it can apply practically, it can apply in a lot of different ways. Of course, on Easter and in church, I guess, and in spiritual environments, if you want to label it that, um, it's all about figuring out how to get back what was lost in terms of our own relationship with God. So we, we talked last week, and not everybody was here last week, so just to review for a minute, we talked about how we're all pretty much born in the, in the same way, some maybe by C-section and others by natural birth, but either way, we get here because our mother carried us and, and then we were born, right? And so we come into the world and we start breathing air, and then what happens is that life starts to wind layers around us, and Some people are born into situations where those layers are pretty much all good and and things happen here and there, but you're born into a pretty good existence, and then other people are born into an existence where things don't go so well, really even from a very young age. And especially in that case, you start to have layers of stuff that are applied to your life. And so that when you're five years old, You have these layers on you that you didn't have when you were born. And when you are 10, there are even more layers. And when you are 15 and 20 and so on and so forth, there are more layers added to your life. And some of those layers are really good and some of those layers are not so good. What happens is that we live our lives and at some point we start to deal with spirituality. That's a dangerous term. It's a misunderstood term. It's a term that's thrown around in in the wrong way a lot these days. But when I say spirituality, I'm talking about a human being's connection with God. The spirit man living in the world and dealing with the spirit of the world as we live as spiritual beings in the world. Now, if you don't believe you have a spirit, then I, I really don't know why you're still here. Because there wouldn't be any reason to live. 
There would not be, because then you would be saying that life is just about being born and getting up every day and doing some stuff for about 70 or 80 years if we live that long, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit shorter. Some people's lives are cut way short, and then we're just done. We're just done. And if that's what we believe, then what we're saying is we don't believe there is a spirit in us that lives beyond what goes on in this natural body while we're here walking around and talking and doing what we do on planet Earth. I wouldn't see any reason to live if that was the case. What's the point if that's the case? So I think that innately down inside all of us, we understand that there is something spiritual going on, that there is a spirit person inside of us, and at some point that spirit person has to deal with spirituality at large, which has its center in the Creator, God Almighty. So, I also asked last week that those who were here do a couple of things over the past week up until today. One was to go to the story in the Gospel of John that starts in about chapter 12 and runs through chapter 20. And it starts with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, being identified as a king, and having praises and hosannas shouted at him, and people lining the streets, and big crowds knowing who he is, and big crowds joining and following after what he's doing. He's at the peak of his popularity. But then it goes on into within six days from that moment, King of Israel, Son of David, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ready to throw a robe on him and a crown on his head and allow him to take over and rule. In six days, he's dead. That's a collapse. That is a quick fall. That's going from the peak to the lowest valley just like that. That's going to being falsely accused, arrested, going on trial, being convicted, being beaten, tortured, hung on a cross, breathe out his last as a limp, dead body hanging there for the world to see. Empty of blood, empty of life, complete collapse. That's what that story will take you to. So I ask you to do that, and I also ask that those who were here, that you would spend some time evaluating your own life and identifying what was the collapse or the collapses that happened to me. Because we've all either experienced a collapse or more than one, or, here's the bad news for the day, hopefully the only bad news I'll give you, you're going to. Because that's life as human beings on planet Earth. So, like I said, we're all born the same. We all come into the world. We're breathing breath. We're doing what we do. We go to school. We have a family and, and, and life and all the activities that are presented to us. And then at some point... All these layers that have been wrapped up around us sometimes start to choke us. 
if they're not the right kind of layers. It can ultimately look like, and, and, and believe me, I don't, want to, I don't want to offend or I don't want to make anybody think about I'm think, that I'm thinking about you because I'm not. It can look like an addiction. All right? It can look like a brokenness that leads to depression. It can look like broken relationships that once were very valuable, very meaningful, that once sort of filled up your life and then all of a sudden because these layers have wrapped you up and maybe wrapped up the other people that were involved, those relationships start to, start to crack and eventually they fall completely apart and they're left as rubble, a big pile of pieces on the ground. That happens to a lot of people. It can look like a lifestyle where we now are, are trying to find affection. We're trying to find love somewhere because those we depended on to supply that to us disappointed us, let us down, betrayed us, and so now we're out there and we don't have a good understanding of where to find true love and affection and meaning because those that we depended on to do it right, did it wrong. So we're mixed up. You follow me? It can look like all these things and more. Okay? So, collapse. Then we just kind of collapse. There are people in this room right now that have lived in addiction. And it's possible that there are people sitting here right now that are still living with some sort of addiction. There are people in this room right now that have either suffered with depression at some time of the past or could be suffering from it right now. Just because it's church don't mean that we're not messed up in some way. Plenty of messed upness, if that's a word, in here. Personally, I have no interest in attending a church where there is nobody that's messed up. Because church is where messed up people need to be. We ought to throw the doors open and let the world know, let this community know, let everybody know, this is a place where messed up people are loved and welcomed. So, there are people in this room that have lived in a lifestyle of prostitution to survive, maybe, and maybe because they had this mixed up, twisted idea of love and intimacy, or perhaps they're supporting their own addiction. There are people in this room right now who have walked through and lived through the hell of, of the worst kinds of broken up relationships that you could talk about. There are people in this room that have experienced rejection and abandonment that settles on you like a big, heavy, wet blanket and it feels like you can't shake it. Why? Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's why. We're not supposed to feel that way. It's not supposed to be that way. We are not supposed to damage each other, but we do. 
collapse. Collapse. Anybody ever felt good in your life? Felt like things were going good? You had enough money? Your relationships were good? You're feeling strong? Things are good at work? Things are good at school? The children are behaving themselves? Nothing's bugging me? I've had a few of those. Not enough, but a few. And then all of a sudden, something starts to happen. You just got comfortable. You just felt at ease. You just had some peace. You were just living in some freedom, and all of a sudden, here they come. This happens. They said that. This person did that. Rejection, abandonment, and then some turn to addiction, and some turn to other uh, forms of lifestyles that are contrary to what we are supposed to be as God's sons and daughters. Collapse. Well, Jesus experienced the biggest collapse ever the history of humanity so i told you parts of two redemption stories last week i'm going to tell you the second half of each indulge me while i finish up my story about the university of virginia men's basketball team nobody in the room cares but me but i care Collapse, number one in the country. For most of the season, number one in the polls. Number one overall going into the postseason tournament last year. They're playing what's supposed to be the worst team in the tournament because they're supposed to be the best. Big expectations. This is their shot. This is the best team they've ever had. This is that and this and that and the other. But you have to play the game, right? And when you go into the game of life with all these expectations, sometimes you get knocked sideways, you get blindsided. And so they play round one of the tournament. And what's supposed to be the worst team in the country, or not not the country, but in the tournament, not only defeats number one for the first time ever in the history of the sport, but they clobber them by 20 points. I'm passionate about that because that's my team. I grew up with that team, right? Collapse. They're a big joke. Subject of ridicule. Subject of harsh criticism. Every game I watched this year, Virginia play, which was every time they were on TV, that situation was brought up. It was brought up until I was throwing up. Almost made me want to just stop watching him. It was so frustrating. So this year, good team. They have to come back. Their coach called it a painful gift. What happened last year? A painful gift. We have opportunity to unwrap the gift, or we can leave it lying there. And so they play, and they win, 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 and they're good. And they rise to number one, then they lose one game, and then they win, and they win, and they win, then they lose one more game. They only lose two games all year long, so they win like 33 games and lose two. They go into the Atlantic Coast Conference Tournament, they win the first round, and then they lose again, and it's all like, oh no, here goes Virginia. Choke can't perform under pressure. Their coach is not a good tournament coach. They don't even make it to the championship, but then the NCAA tournament starts. And you got to play one game at a time. 
and you got to see the opportunity for redemption. And they win, and they win, and they go to overtime, and they win, and they make it to the national championship. And and I'm pacing the floor for the whole second half of the game, and and they have a lead, and they blow a lead, and it's like, oh no, here goes Virginia, here goes another big collapse, and they end up to end of regulation in a tie game. It goes to overtime. They ended up end up winning the national championship in one of the biggest redemption stories, biggest comeback stories in the history of sports. You go from being the GOAT last year that loses in the first round to on top of the world this year. Well, that's just basketball, right? It's just a game. It's just fun. It's just kids. It's just colleges. But it's a redemption story, and we can learn from every redemption story. We can learn something. We can learn about possibility. We can learn about hope. We can learn about not giving up. We can learn about focus. We can learn about hard work. We can learn about lots of practical things that can help us in our lives. From every redemption story. You know, I'm not a Tiger Woods fan, but he just won the Masters. It's a huge redemption story for him, at least. Right? Redemption, we can learn from these stories. Even if we, if we like the people, fine. If we don't like the people, fine. We can still learn from the redemption stories. Well, like I said, the greatest redemption story ever in the history of humanity follows the greatest collapse ever in the history of humanity. Because the people are looking for a savior. They're looking for a king. They're looking for somebody to get them out from under Roman rule. They're looking for somebody to pave the way for them to get into the heart of God in a real personal father-son, father-daughter type of a way. And Jesus comes along and it, it could be that he's that person, right? It could be that he's the one that's going to provide this opportunity, right? And he's born just like the rest of us. He comes from a mother now. There was a little difference in that he was born to a virgin girl, conceived of the Holy Spirit. But you know what Jesus' life was like for about 30 years? Pretty much just like yours and mine. He lived his life inside the context of a family. His father was a carpenter. He learned, how, he learned the trade. He worked shoulder to shoulder with his dad. He's going to school, he's getting his education, he's hanging out with friends, he's playing. He's just doing the stuff human beings do. The only extraordinary thing we see that's sort of not typical is at 12, they've been to Jerusalem, they leave, they're headed home, they realize he's not with them. So they go back looking for him and they find him sitting in the temple, listening and having conversation with the elders and the teachers and they ask him, why did you do this? He said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? So he knows why he's here. He knows what he's doing. But he's just living his life because he knows that the time is coming when he will be revealed as who he is. And that time arrives and all of a sudden Jesus is on the scene. And to start with, the crowds are pretty small and he's just calling a few people, come along, walk with me, live this thing out with me. And they do. But then the teaching is powerful. The truth is revelational. And so the crowds start to grow. And then he starts to work profound miracles that ordinary people just can't do. He starts to lay his hands on crippled people. And all of a sudden their limbs are straightened and they recover. He starts to make mud out of spit and dirt. Put it in blind people's eyes. And all of a sudden they can see. 
These are things not just everybody can do. So he's gaining attention. And then, wow, he brings a dead person back to life. Not just for a few minutes to mumble to their relatives, but brings them back to life to where they're back to living normally in society. And the crowds grow and the fame grows. The notoriety gets bigger. And he's prominent now in the culture. But there is somebody who's formulating a plan. There's a group that's formulating a plan for his collapse. And he knows that. But he continues to do the God work until, like I said in John chapter 12, where he comes in to the city and he's riding on the back of a donkey, the colt of a donkey. And the people start to line the streets, big, huge crowds of people, and to call out praises to him and to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches and he's being hailed as potentially the king of the Jews. And so he, he gets to Jerusalem and he starts to meet with a smaller number of people and to tell them what's coming, but they don't really understand. And in the greatest collapse in the history of humanity, and you know the story, so I won't walk through every, every detail of it. You know, we're not going to dig into the, 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 the gore of the crucifixion really today. You know the story. You know about the collapse where they start to accuse him of things that he didn't do. They start to accuse him of blasphemy and heresy. They know what will work. This was what will work. This is what will get people's attention because these people are devoted to God. They know the law of God. And they know that if a person violates certain principles of the law of God, it's going to be a big problem for them. And so he's taken to Pilate. And they've said this man's guilty of a lot of really bad crimes. We want you to judge him. We want you to convict him. We want you to pronounce the death penalty over him. And Pilate has a conversation. He interrogates him a little bit, and he comes back and says, I don't have a reason to charge this man with anything. But they insist, crucify him. He even thinks he has a plan to free Jesus by offering them a chance to choose a criminal. Choose which one of these you want released, as is the custom. And he presents a murderer, somebody who was involved in an insurrection and killed another person, is the other guy. And they offer them, he offers them the choice, and they choose the murderer. Collapse. Collapse. And so, Pilate feels like he has no choice because of the pressure of the mob. And... He orders that he be crucified. And so they take him into the judgment hall. And in, in the truest depiction of humiliation and abuse and torture, they strip him down. They start to beat him. They start to pull his hair out. They start to mock him. They start to shove him around. They start to punch him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they press it into his skull. They wrap him up in a purple robe and they bow down and they act like they're worshiping him with sarcastic and, and, and belligerent attitudes. 
And then they put his own clothes back on him and they, they, they take a cross and he drags it as far as he can drag it and then somebody else picks it up and takes it up the hill and they nail him to the cross. And in the ultimate collapse, he hangs there suffering in pain and torture until he's dead. They take his dead body off the cross. They stretch it out there. Don't even know what they're going to do with it. Somebody else has to come along. Listen, y'all. This man was king. This man was son of David. This man was on top of the world six days ago. And he's dead. And they're trying to figure out where to bury him when somebody else shows up and says, I'll handle it. So they put him in a tomb. Let's put up Luke chapter 22, verse 53. I've got two scriptures, two scriptures to share with you today. And these two scriptures are going to contrast each other in a pretty, pretty vivid way. This is what we need to know. We need to know that darkness is all around us. We need to know that the world is a very, very dark place. If you don't start there in what you know and understand, you're going to live your life perpetually confused, and you're not going to know what to do, and you're not going to know how to address the evil that's going on all around us. You have to know, you have to confess that darkness is there. Jesus says, every day I was with you in the temple courts. This is why he's standing there before those who are judging him, those who are condemning him. He's standing in front of them while they are saying, you have blasphemed God. You have violated the covenant. You are a heretic. His response is this. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is your hour when darkness reigns. So, he's willing to walk through the dark hour. He's willing to acknowledge the darkness. He's, he's already looked at Judas and said... I understand that you're part of the darkness. Go do what you have to do. What's the, what's the lesson in that? Listen, we spend so much time. We waste so much time dealing with religious stuff that we're never going to change. We're never going to fully understand it. We're never going to win an argument about it. Why sit around having debates with Judas? Just tell Judas to go do whatever it is he has to do. There are people, there are systems, there are situations and circumstances in our lives that are always going to be dark. Walk away from them. Tell them, do what you have to do. I'm not going to hang out in your darkness. Because what we do is when we begin to dig into it with them, 
or to spend too much time contemplating whatever it is, we are not only sucking ourselves into that black hole of religious ridiculousness, but we are burning up precious time when we could be doing God's kingdom stuff in the earth. Let the darkness do whatever the darkness is going to do. Let the naysayers speak whatever they need to speak. Let the mockers be mockers. You say, well, Jeff, isn't, our, isn't it our job to go out and recruit and witness and try to talk people into coming in to, to experience what we have? No. <laughs> that's not our job. Listen. I don't care what you've ever been told, that's not our job. Is it our job to witness? Well, sure, but not like that. You know what the truest witness you will ever bear into a dark world is? To live out your life in kingdom obedience, paying careful attention to His words every day, being very deliberate and meticulous about obeying whatever it is He has said for you to do. If you don't know where to start, just start by doing those things He's told us all to do. And do that day after day after day, alongside and in front of whoever it is that's in your pathway in life. At some point, He may give you the opportunity to open your mouth and share the gospel. But the vast majority of the time, we share the gospel with our lives, with our actions, with our decisions, with our love, with our forgiveness, with our compassion, with our tenderness, with our gentleness, with our generosity, with our peaceful attitudes, with the freedom that we demonstrate in the way that we live. And people will view our lives and will evaluate us and say, man, where does that come from? How do they live that way? What is their source? What is their foundation? I just, I just hope somebody's watching me. They don't have to be listening to me. Just watch. We were feeding on the streets in Atlanta years ago, early in the days of City of Refuge. I'm sitting, sitting talking to this homeless man. And I said to him, I said, you know, the Lord loves you, right? The Lord wants you to be a son. He wants you to, to live in a relationship with him. Have you, have you ever repented, been born? He looked at me and he said, Sir? I said, Yes. He said, I could hear you a lot better if my stomach wasn't growling. Point well taken. That's when we turned to something that I labeled as biscuit evangelism. That's where you go out on the streets without this haughty, high-minded attitude that I'm here and this is where you need to be. Rather, I go out on the street with enough food to feed myself and to share with whoever else is there who's hungry. 
and you share food, and you share time, and you share a hug, and you share an encouraging word which may or may not include a scripture. And you write a note that's meaningful and you send it off to somebody you know needs encouragement. And you accept that call from somebody who's in jail who's calling you collect even when you don't feel like it. Right? And you pay for that care package and you sponsor that kid at Christmas time who's not going to have Christmas if you don't sponsor them. This is how we witness. This is how we spread the message of who God is and what He can do in our lives. So, we acknowledge the darkness and then we live as light in the darkness. So let's go to our second scripture from Matthew 28. So Jesus has died. He's been placed in a tomb. A stone has been rolled over the face of the tomb. And here's the way Matthew 28 starts. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And Jesus is not there. All of a sudden, a redemption story I started to say starts to form, but no, it's been in motion already because the collapse is part of the redemption story. So the redemption story now takes a turn and starts to move in a different direction. And see, when Jesus drew in that first breath after he had been dead for a couple of days, and he drew in that first breath that breath included not only air, but light. Light started to dispel the darkness. And see, whereas we have to acknowledge that darkness is there, we also must always remind ourselves that there is light. And that when light shows up, darkness cannot stay in the same place where light is. So we're living in a dark world. Jesus was in a dark place. His, his followers now were living under a dark cloud. They were very depressed and saddened and confused about what had just happened. Come on, what, what in the world just happened? Six days ago, look where we were and look where we are now. Everything's dark, but all of a sudden he takes a breath and light is reestablished. And he takes another breath and light intensifies. And he takes another breath and he walks out. And all of a sudden, everywhere he goes, light goes. Every time he speaks, light is emanated forth. Truth, light, hope, revelation, life comes from him. Every, he's, he's been there. He's been in a dark spot. He's been dead. And now he's alive. And everywhere he goes, he carries light with him. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit hovered over the waters. Do you know what caused an earthquake? The Spirit. Do you know what caused the veil, the curtain in the temple to be ripped apart so that now we could get into the Holy of Holies and really experience God on a first-hand basis? Spirit. Do you know what caused darkness to cover the entire region while He was hanging on the cross for hours? Spirit. The Spirit always hovers over the work of God. The Spirit always prepares the way for the phenomenal, life-changing work of God. The Spirit hovered over the waters in the beginning and God opened His mouth and said, a word. Boom. Let there be light. Do you know who the Word is? John said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and by Him all things were made that were made, and nothing was made outside of His presence. Living Word that produces light. And ever since light was spoken in the beginning, light has been available. But we bury light. We wrap it up. We pound it down. We cover it with all the layers that come in our lives. And all of a sudden we feel like everything's darkness and we can't find any light. Well, here's the power. Here, here's the power of the lesson for you and me. And we're going to have communion. When Jesus woke up, and got up, opened his eyes, and started breathing breath again and walked out of the tomb. What he said to us through his own life and through his own actions is that no matter what your collapse is, redemption is available to you. No matter what sucked the life out of you, no matter what beat you down, no matter what shattered or broke or destroyed, you have an opportunity for redemption. He showed us that there is no situation, no situation that can keep us from experiencing His light and walking in His life and having a garden relationship with Him. So we may still have to deal with fallout. Still have to deal with the collateral damage of whatever it was that happened. But we can do so in the light. In His strength. With His hope in our hearts and on our lips. Whatever it is, whatever it was, you have an opportunity for redemption. To have reestablished in us the original purpose for which God created us. See, He didn't create us to hurt. He didn't create us to suffer. He didn't create us to live in brokenness, but it happens. The good news today on Easter Sunday April 21st, 2019 is redemption is here. Redemption is available for everybody. 
everybody, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, doesn't matter. However much money you have or don't have has nothing to do with it. What kind of house you live in has nothing to do with it. If you don't have a house to live in, it has nothing to do with it. Jesus got up and walked out for everybody. But it's only those who are willing to embrace and accept the light that he offers to us that are going to walk in that benefit. So we're going to receive elements of communion. I'm going to ask Eddie to come up. He's going to sing this song called I Am Redeemed while we take communion. And my, my approach to communion, like a lot of things, I guess, is somewhat different. We do this because he told us to do it, yes. We do this because he said, do this in remembrance of me, yes. But I see a whole lot more than that in why we do it. I see a whole lot more than that in Scripture. You say, well, Jeff, um, I've tried before to really live it out and just can't do it. You know, I just, I just, it's just not for me. I just, you know, it just didn't work for me. It just, I just couldn't find what you guys talk about, you know. Well, I know people like that. And in 100% of the cases, it's because the method was wrong. Because if the method is right, it's always going to work. You see, I, I labeled this the upside-down, inside-out gospel about 20 years ago, where I always thought that, you know, we, I, I'd, I'd repent and, and be saved, and then I'd just start cleaning myself up, cleaning up my life. I'd stop doing whatever I was doing. I won't start naming stuff. Y'all get a bad opinion of me. Just stop doing this and stop doing that. Listen, cleaning us up is not our job. I don't have the power to clean me up. We should spend no time at all trying to do what is right and not do what is wrong. Seriously. Because I know a better way, I know a more effective way, much more effective way to get where we want to go. Listen, Jesus sat with his followers and he said, he picked up some bread and he said, listen, he started breaking the bread into pieces. He said, this is symbolic of my body. All right. And I want you to take a piece of this broken bread as a symbol of my broken body. And I want you to take it and ingest it, okay? And then he poured wine into a cup, and he said, this is a symbol of my blood. I want you to take that and drink it, ingest it inside of you. And I want you to do this from now on. What's the point of just drinking some juice and eating some bread? Just as a matter of remembrance, just as a matter of obedience to what he said for us to do. I just, I kept thinking that through, thinking it through, and I'm like, it's just, there just has to be more to it. That can't be all there is to it. What, you know? And then all of a sudden, I started to see it like this. Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to us, 
take me into you and I will transform you from the inside out once you have me inside of you because the work that needs to be done inside of you, you can't do it. Well, how do I take him into me? Is it just through eating some bread and drinking some juice out of a cup? No, listen, this is symbolic as well. It's symbolic of what we have to do every other day besides Easter Sunday or whatever days we take communion. It is every day getting up and sitting with Him and going to His words and seeing them as bread and ingesting them into who we are and seeing them as His broken body and His, and His blood spilled out for us and taking that into us and literally saying, Lord, I want You to come in here and do like Paul said, I don't want it to be me living in here anymore. I want it to be You. What is the heart of Jesus? What is the life of Jesus? What is the Spirit of Jesus? If that's living in us, then what's it going to do to us from the inside out? Transformation is not my job. Oh man, it creates such freedom when we acknowledge the things that are not our jobs. <laughs> and transformation is near the top of the list of things that are just not my job. I'm not in charge of fixing my heart. I'm not in charge of correcting my deceitful spirit. I'm not in charge of absolving any lustful thoughts. I'm not in charge of cleaning up anything on the inside of my mind and my heart. That's not my job. My job is to dig in and to absorb Him. My job is to take Him into me. This is the process of discipleship. And you know what happens? The more of Him I take into me, the more I see day by day that He's pushing out what doesn't belong. And all of a sudden, there's way more light in here than there is darkness. That's good. <laughs>